0: Welcome, once again, to The Scrum, the WGBH podcast where we talk about politics and political media. I'm Adam Riley. As many of you know, I've spent the last several weeks at the trial of Jahar Sarnayev, the admitted and now the convicted Boston Marathon bomber. This episode of The Scrum is actually gonna be a sort of Sarnayev exit interview. I sat down recently with two other reporters who covered that story very closely. WBZ's Jim Armstrong and Boston.com's Hillary Sargent. We met up at the Irish Village Pub in Brighton, about a block away from WGBH. We talked about their reflections on the trial and the defendant and some lingering questions the whole process failed to answer for them. Here's what Jim and Hillary had to say. Well, So let me start by asking. Jim, I told you earlier today via Twitter that I had, let's say, mixed feelings about sitting down to discuss Sarnaya because I'm a little beat with this topic and you are not,
1: right? I do not yet have your level of Sarnayev fatigue. In fact, I don't think I have any level of it. I feel like really talking about it still is still part of the process. I feel like so much happened there that, you know, I don't bring it home with me. I don't really talk to my wife about it a ton. We went out to dinner with some friends on Saturday and they wanted to hear a lot about it. So I did talk a lot about it, but I feel like we all witnessed so much in that courtroom and I only put such a small amount of it in all the stories that I did. That there's still, for me at least, it feels like there's a lot left to talk about. How about you, Hillary?
2: Yeah. No. I mean, I, I mean, I think it depends on the person, right? I mean, the worst nightmare is the is sort of having the same uninformed conversations with people who haven't really paid attention, but are aware of the fact that there was a bombing, and I'm I, I'm tired of that. But I was I was tired of that probably you know from the very beginning. Um, no, I think I sort of feel the opposite. I mean, I, I I certainly I like I appreciate not going to the courthouse today, but at the same time, like, you know, that's it's a, a long time to spend every day and all of a sudden with no warning your job sort of goes back to being what your job was before and it, it it it's a bizarre, you know, today today feels very strange to me. It feels like, you know, the first day um after you graduate high school and you know or something like that. It's sort of this transitional life moment that you never thought would feel like that um, but I but I still feel like I I have a hard time sort of transitioning to thinking about anything else
0: Let me ask you guys um, you I think were both there longer than I was because I didn't start coming on a daily basis until March and I think you guys were both there from the very beginning right? From Wadir? Yeah.
2: I was not there during Wadir but okay. I was there from the beginning of the trial
0: So let me ask, given that, I'm wondering if you're thinking about the trial itself as a legal process and sort of a, a cultural process also. And or you're thinking about Jahar have himself changed over the course of I see you nodding, you know where I'm going. Hillary, what are you thinking?
2: Well, so I come from a perspective of before I was a journalist. I worked as a for a private investigative firm for a long time on the sort of prosecution side and then and then I also have worked on sort of innocence project investigations. I think I came into this thinking that I would be more wowed by the defense i mean by far i've 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 said it in a lot of trials, um, not a death penalty trial, but i, I didn't i didn 't actually think i would I would find Jahar and I to be sympathetic, but I thought I would find him to be more sympathetic and I thought i would I would be impressed by the defense's case and i'm you know, I think that everyone asks, did the verdict surprise you? And it, I mean, to some extent, it would have surprised me either way, but it didn't surprise me. It didn't surprise me because I, I think you're pretty hard-pressed as a, as a reporter in there to not imagine at some point during that, regardless of how you feel about the death penalty, of coming to the same decision they came to. And I, I, that is not something I ever would have expected to feel.
1: no i i very much agree i was watching the jury intently trying to figure out i mean I, i don't have any ability other than the average person to sort of tell what someone's thinking right and i'm looking looking at 18 strangers 12 of whom would deliberate and i couldn't really tell how they were taking the defense's approach but i got a sense of it by watching them and they just sort of had these these blank stares and miriam clark would would say, you or could Conrad, tell. Right? Oh, Mir- I'm sorry, Miriam yeah. Conrad. Oh no, I'm jumbling it. No,
0: please.
1: No. Miriam Conrad, would. you could tell she was hoping this moment would absolutely land. She had the, the, the girlfriend up there from high school or college saying, So Jahar, he would spring for dominoes? He would pay for the group to have pizza? And she'd say it just yes. like that. And then she'd turn to her left and she'd look at the jury who gave her nothing over and over and over again. And I thought to myself, if I'm reading these people right, This defense is falling as flat as each of these stories and cumulatively that doesn't it's not going to end well for
2: him well no and and look the the group of reporters covering the story is not death qualified right i mean so the thing about this jury is you had to be death qualified you had to say you couldn't be the sort of you know prototype massachusetts liberal cambridge anti-death penalty lunatic as people would but me you couldn't be that but in the trust me like in this group of reporters we have a lot of that and i think even those people felt the same thing and that the moment where where i sort of realized wow i don't know i might even you know then i said like all bets are off but again i, I i'm what assuming was moment, ju- what was the
0: moment when you thought that or teacher, said that uh,
2: the well there were a lot of them but but when the defense started presenting their case You're sort of waiting for them. I mean, look, this is a, this is a, I don't know that there were a lot of different approaches the defense could take. They didn't think he was insane. And there there are only so many things you can do. So I think that you could tell their hope was that all of these elementary school teachers who had loved this kid, and I'm sure he was a great kid at that point, that that would humanize him. And I think that after hearing everything else that you'd heard and seeing really just, over and over and over again. I mean the the video of of the aftermath on Boylston Street that it didn't even fall flat. I mean it was it was really hard to watch that and not sort of feel like I was you know I mean I I felt I found myself aligned with uh, with media people that I have never found myself aligned with before. It struck me you And know, I was retweeting Jerry Callahan and I was like, Oh God, what is <laughs> what's happening to me I was telling you this
1: earlier, Adam. I was I'm taking all the the defense strategy in and I'm listening to their testimony and this was from, from phase one and I'm thinking, okay, it seems to make sense to me that Tamerlan was the ringleader. Tamerlan was the first to radicalize. He went to Russia. He really led, led the entire endeavor. That makes sense to me. So then the jury has its chance in phase two to fill out the verdict slip and they get to answer these very specific questions yeah. put forth by the defense, several of which said, you know, was uh, rather it comes out as a statement tamerlan was the leader who planned and executed the marathon bombing number of jurors who agree three this would not have happened but for tamerlan number of jurors who agree three and at that point I actually heard that sort of gasp intake in the, oh, yeah. from a couple people in the room. I mean that was the entire defense strategy that the older brother did it. The older brother pushed him along. It doesn't excuse him. We've talked about that at length. Yep. But I I can't believe. It's still astounding to me that they didn't be, they didn't believe that.
2: Yeah, but you also have to remember like those so I looked at it the opposite way during the during the verdict reading, right? I looked at it as you have, you have those three... You consistently at least had an element of the jury that seemed to buy some of it. And yeah. in the end, I mean, that was the other unique thing, right? In the penalty phase, the first word out of the clerk's mouth, we knew we knew that this was going to a, to a death sentencing. But this verdict was the opposite. We yeah. had 21 pages of... And I, you know, I mean, I think that was significant. You know what the most significant turning point for me was? Was, uh, was the Amtrak crash... I was listening to the radio that morning. It was a few days before the verdict and there was a story of a 19-year-old kid who had whose mother had been, you know, he was on the train with his mother and his mother had gotten tossed around in the car and he had grabbed her and helped her out and then he had run back in and it was the same day or the day after that we heard testimony from the psychologist about the unformed brain and I was, you know, I mean I I do think like I I think that the I think, you know, the the best things they had fell flat, and I, I don't know that they fell flat because it was the wrong strategy, because it was the only strategy, but, I mean, I didn't see anyone kind of feel super sympathetic to that or voice much about that.
0: I remember that tweet that you sent about the kid who, who went into the, the scene of the train wreck and, and pulled... Did he pull multiple people to safety? Yeah, and, and the contrast, and it was a really good cutting incisive tweet it was you. No, no no I mean, it was like Adam. the medium I'm at blushing. its best um <clears throat> i am wondering if you guys so so what i noticed you mentioned um, miriam conrad before i remember i mean i sort of publicly and i don't know if this is actually appropriate for a reporter but i did it but i I was struck by her, you know, clucking over how she didn't get the technology she was using. Oh, let me just try to turn this crazy thing on. That sort of stuff. Right. But I was also struck by what seemed to me to be an over, over identification with Jahar and an inability. Maybe she needs to identify with him really strongly to defend him in a case like this. But she didn't seem to get that the jurors were not going to see certain things that he had done, that were being described to them in the same light that she did, and she would describe, you mentioned the ordering dominoes, like he would spring for dominoes.
1: Or how about the dog thing? Remember they had the picture of him at yes, the cookout? Yes, yes! Dempsey, so tell me, so she says, this is, what's this Dempsey? dog? Who's, what's the dog's name? The dog's <laughs> name is Dempsey? And she looks at the jury, impassive, nothing. Did Jahar like Dempsey? Yes, did Dempsey like Jahar? Yes, well he used to feed Jahar treats. I'm. Did, so, she, did she chuckle then and sort of... She, yes. yes, she, 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 she chuckled, chuckled she guffawed, she was... she was. But no, Adam, I think you hit the nail on the head. She and Judy Clark really both, I feel, from watching them interact with him, identified with him. They are sympathetic to him. They, they, they see a side of him that we have not seen. She didn't, from what I could see, connect with the jury in the same way.
0: Yeah, I want to get Hillary in here, but I want to say one more thing first, which is that I didn't think, at least in her closing, I thought that Judy Clark hinted that she didn't connect with him in the same way that Miriam Conroy did. Maybe was even a little pissed off that she hadn't been able to. Because remember, she said that one thing where she sounded like Sarah Koenig in that lame, in my humble opinion, ending the serial, which I listened to, Riverdale. Remember at the end of that, Sarah Koenig said something like, I just wanted to, sh- I want to shake everyone and say, I want answers. And Judy Clark basically said, you know, I wish I could give you a clear, concise explanation of why this happened, but I don't have it. I can't." And she sounded kind of ticked off. So I thought there was a little bit of daylight between Conrad and Clark on that, how Conrad was sort of taken by Jahar. And-
2: Conrad has kids, which I think is significant. I don't believe Judy Clark does, but you got to remember, they get a call to take this case before they've met him, and you don't, once you take this case, you take this case. So you know, I think to assume that they had time to say, let me interview him and find out if he has a good reason for why he did this but the interesting thing to me is if you look at the Boulder case which i only spent a couple of days at and jake Carney had a very kind of chatty he was like had a good rapport with the jury right the difference in that case is i mean there were there were lots of victims there were actually more victims in that case yeah. if you i mean if you look at victim as just someone who died but there was also sort of an enemy on the other side, right? I mean, the government was sort of the enemy, too. The, you, you were listening to all these things that the government had done wrong. There, they, There was none of that in this, right? I mean, beyond the self-deploying of police officers, and we didn't get into that a lot, I mean, there was no, this was, there was a single enemy or two, and one of them was dead. I mean, and I think that the most interesting thing to me is, Let's imagine it switched, right? I mean, what if it had been Tamerlan who lived and Jahar? And, like, imagining that trial, I actually think that that's a trial, in hindsight, that, that the defense would have had a better shot on. And I think they would have had a better shot on it because I think there's a way better case for insanity, probably, it seems like. Or a way, you know, I mean, but but here I think, you know, they they didn't pursue that. and And everything they told us indicated that this didn't sound like a terrible life to me, you know. He grew up in Cambridge. He didn't. He went to good schools. He had teachers that loved him. He had crazy parents, and a lot of people have crazy parents. But can I just add uh, that he
0: had all sorts of young women who loved the hell out of him? I, the thing I will remember Adam about this have trial. Didn't that,
2: and he's turned Look out. Look at how okay. great I he become. turned out.
0: I have a lovely wife and a beautiful family. <laughs> no, but I, I will remember. I don't know if you guys will, but you remember how. Some of the the uh, his friends, their faces would glow. Well, yeah. What do you tell me about Jahar? And it would they would become radiant. And what job what job did Jahar get? He was a lifeguard. And this sort of dreamy, yeah. rhaps- you know rhapsodic look yeah. on their faces. I
2: remember they hadn't seen him right. I mean, these are people that had not seen him since the last time they thought he was a good guy. So it's different than Tamerlane They hadn't watched this decline or. Or radicalization, I mean they, you know, the last time they saw him they were, you know, ordering dominoes and smoking pot. Or
1: took them by surprise, I guess, because that was one of the points that the prosecution tried to make. You know this lovable guy who would score you some weed and you could hang out and you would go on these bro nights as they were called and play video games, but did you also know he was listening to these shaheeds on his iPad and do you know that all of his CDs had this jihadi uh, bent to them?
2: I mean, the thing that I, that I do disagree with a lot of people about this case, a lot of people have said, like, I can't believe we're paying all this money for the defense. Like, I mean, first of all, we do that for, for obvious reasons, even in cases where it's sort of a slam dunk in terms of guilt. But, you know, I actually, you know, I want to know, and I think this is the, the frustration Judy Clark expressed, I want to know how a kid who has all the advantages and all of the promise that he has becomes this— Tamerlin is a, is less of a mystery to me. It's pretty obvious what happened with Tamerlin, but but I I do think the I, I I think I would have been a little bit reassured if they could have. So there's this whole argument about you know in, in in Chechen families how the older brother is you know like the police and the president and the leader and and that sort of fell apart at a couple of points. But I'd be much more comfortable if that was the case because otherwise. You know, if a kid who goes to you know Cambridge schools and has teachers that love him and is smart and gets A's and has a dog that he likes to give treats to and girls that like him can become that—that like that's actually that's a scary, scarier scenario than anything, right? I mean,
1: the defense did an excellent job of. of painting a picture of Joe Harsenheim as just a kid who you would pass at Whole Foods when he's buying the milk and not think twice about him he just seemed like everybody else and that's that's hard for people to wrap their brains around they, they need to believe a lot of people need to believe that for someone to do what he did to put a bomb a couple of feet behind an eight-year-old boy and a bunch of other children and then walk away you need to be an especially sinister craven awful person but what this trial showed us is that that's not necessarily the case or at least you don't outwardly see what that person looks like
2: well i think the defense inadvertently proved the exact thing they didn't want to right i mean they went out on a limb to say he's a human being and he had you know all this promise and they never proved the part where his brother took him down and so instead you're left with this just like wow this wasn't this wasn't a young kid who was under his brother's spell. This is just a bad kid who somehow was able to yeah. make everyone not understand it.
0: Well, I felt like when they brought on that uh, brain development expert, Jay Geed, right, yeah. to talk about how the, the adolescent brain is unformed, that leads to poor decision making and and you know imprudent behaviors. They they had also uh, established that he was this, at least at a, to you know to all appearances, a sweet, kind thoughtful, unusually mature kid. And I thought the government was very uh, good at saying, so that shows us that, in fact, his brain may actually have been pretty developed for a teenager. And so the defense kind of undercut
1: themselves or argued against themselves. I mean, Nadine Pellegrini's cross of Dr. Geed was probably, in my opinion, the best cross of the entire trial, because by the end of it, she had him essentially working as a prosecution witness. She had him saying, well, you know, hey, we don't know, I'm, I'm an expert in the field, For which there can be no experts. He said, I've spent a quarter of a century doing this and I really haven't scratched the surface, was his quote. I I really don't know what's happening with the brain, but what I can tell you is you can really judge a brain's maturity by the actions of the person. So to get back to your point, Hillary, if if you've got a 19 year old boy who has the presence of mind to be in a catastrophic train accident and start rescuing family members and strangers, that tells you a great deal about the, the ability and the maturity of his mind. And if you have a 19 year old who puts a bomb or shoe at a marathon, that tells you a lot about his mind as well.
2: No, but I think I came out of that trial thinking that if there had been a fire in the UMass Dartmouth dormitory a week before the marathon bombing, I think Jaharser and I would have gone back in and rescued his friends. But I also think he would have done the marathon bombing, and that that's the tricky part here.
0: Let me ask you guys what your big unanswered questions are, the stuff that, that you don't know now that this is done, that maybe you had hoped you would know.
1: I'll take a page from both of your books here. Hillary sort of answered it, and you asked it as well. I, I want to know the same thing. how, What went through his mind? How was he able to comport himself and, and to be the guy who was friendly and uh, a shoulder for his friends to cry on? I'm going to pick up your boyfriend at Logan and get him wherever he needs to be. I'm, I'm your go-to friend. How does that person simultaneously plan and carry out the Boston Marathon bombing? Because I think Hillary's right. I think if there had been a fire in his dorm, he would have rescued friends and property and been that guy.
2: Because I know this, I don't mean that, you know, to no, suggest no, no. that I think he was a good guy at no. that point. I, I just, think, no, no, I well, think so, that's uh,
0: a the way you have framed it, I think, because I have that, I'll just second what Jim said, or third. Uh, <laughs> it, I think you're right. I he, think he would have too, which is bizarre. You have
1: to take, I think you have to take his boat note at face value and that's why it was referred to so often by the prosecution. This was his justification if you, if he perceived you to be his enemy as a stranger, then you were potentially his target. I don't want to have to kill you, he wrote, but I'm, I'm going to have to do it anyway because you're killing our innocent civilians, so I will kill yours. So in his mind, and you know what? That's interesting. I don't know if he would even be able to articulate it in a way that we would understand or appreciate either if he were to have taken the stand or given a lengthy interview. I don't know that he would be able to satisfy us with his explanation of how he was able to draw that line and say like, I, look, I'm friends with these other non-Muslims. I'm friends with other people who my big brother would have probably called an infidel or a coffer. But I, I'm going to save them or spare them because I, I, I like them as people. But Martin Richard, I will put this bomb in front of him. I don't know that he could even explain his own, that bifurcation.
2: I mean, look, I think there's a couple things. One, I think that there's a way you can look at him as sort of a a, a cross between a sociopath and like a people pleaser. And like... If you look at your Harshner and I as someone who wanted people to like him, and then you look at his brother, I, I think that that sort of makes the most sense, right? I mean, he treated the people at UMass Dartmouth well, and he wanted them to like him, and he treated his brother well, and that happened to involve like murdering people. I mean, I think that my guess is this was a—I don't want to call him a confused kid, but I think I think because I think he did something that like goes so far beyond any of the poor decisions that Adam or Jim or I made when we were 19. But I think that, you know, I mean, I think this was someone who cared more about himself than anything. And what he wanted for himself was for people to to love him. And in doing so, it didn't matter, like, what else happened to anyone around him. And I don't think he probably looked at Martin Richard and thought, that's a kid, I want to kill a kid. I think he didn't care. And I think he thought the same way we were we were told we were it was suggested to us that Catherine Russell thought hey you know she she allegedly googled what rewards will i get if my husband is a martyr i mean i think that there's an extent to which we are we are just witnessing a whole bunch of really selfish young people with formed or unpo- unformed brains who like ruined the lives of a whole bunch of other people i mean it's not it's you know it's not that much different than like someone who you know gets in a car and drives right i mean like there's an extent to which like it is like it's a much grander scale and there's like a lot more kind of weight behind it but this is an age where people do really stupid things and this seems like a really premeditated one and i don't buy that he was kind of locked into this but what,
1: do you think that he or tamerlan perceived what would happen next so they built extra bombs, and there was this perhaps attempted uh, plan to get to New York City, but I, I couldn't wrap, I tried to wrap my mind around what I, pers- what I thought they thought phase two would be, right? They bombed the marathon. Then he goes to the after he buys his milk, then he goes to the gym and works out. Tamerlan does whatever he does. They made no legitimate effort to conceal their identities. They had to know if they thought about this element for a 10th of a second, they were going to be captured on every surveillance camera up and down Boylston Street. They didn't flee. They didn't end up in Guatemala. They stayed. They went about their lives. How incredibly unsophisticated were they? Is the question I was... Did they not know that phase two was going to be... Our pictures are everywhere, and they're going to be out by Friday.
2: Well, so so I think you have to remember this. So, you know, I think that... Let's say I'm, I'm going to become a bank robber. And I rob a bank in Brookline. And I get away with it. And then I'm going to rob another bank, and I need someone to help me with it. And I'm like, hey, to my brother, I'm like, hey, I got away with it. Like, we can do this again. And I get away with it again. You've got to remember, like according to what what we've been told, Tamerlan Tsarnaev, like, almost beheaded three people on 9-11. And for whatever reason, and I think that's the biggest mystery of this whole thing, like, got away with it. If he did it, got away with it. And I think that there's a, you know, there's an extent to which, like, I, I mean, I also think, I think there's more of an indication that Tamerlan Tsarnaev was delusional and narcissistic in a way that that drove this and that like that led him to believe like we'll you know we'll we'll like we'll get quiet for a few days go about our business buy milk go to the gym and then we'll head to new york and bomb a few more things and then we'll get our 72 virgins and live a life you know f- for the ever after in paradise
1: so the end game you think that's for a them lot was of
2: virgins I mean, that's I a that's an overwhelming
1: them. number of virgins do you think so do you think that to the extent that two brothers talked about it at all The final step was we we both die.
2: I mean they must I mean no I mean I think these are these are sort of the biggest mysteries of it is you know we have I mean they must have talked about it but we have no insight into that beyond the emails.
0: You'd like to think they must have talked about it but on the other hand what we saw or didn't see from Jahar throughout the trial could almost make me imagine that he didn't talk about it. That he was just the the chill oh, I little guess brother. If, if he were we this simpleton maybe. happening
2: but. on April fifteenth, you know, you're gonna show up here. You're not. You know, you wouldn't. You're, you're not putting on a, a heavy backpack that your brother hands you and going to the marathon without. I mean, to-
0: totally. But at the same time, he's a low stress kind of guy. Stress. Sorry, he's a stress free kind of guy. Uh, you know. No love in the heart the tweets, of the city. The tweets
1: were the I don't, tweets.
2: Yeah. I had a really, I had a, like, I think I had a harder time with the tweets than almost anything. I mean, the tweets. I mean, aside the from the fact that like I just don't know like Kendrick Lamar or rap lyrics, but like I had a hard time with the tweets. Um, but I think the most convincing part of the prosecution's argument that he was sort of living these double lives Are those two Twitter accounts that start up, and I, you know, I mean, I think that there are people that, you know, that there are people that have normal lives and are doing you know heroin and their spouses don't know and I you know I don't I I don't think it's this isn't the first time someone has lived a double life I mean it's a it's a very different kind of double life but I don't think this is an unprecedented thing I mean in my mind the funny thing about and I is in my mind like he represents the opposite of an unformed mind he was like a precocious kid he was smart like, he was the 19-year-old who's as smart as, as half of the 25-year-olds. Like, that, that part, I think they totally, you know, I mean, from a maturity standpoint, maybe not. But I don't, I don't buy the idea that he was sort of this naive, like, follow-along-with-whatever kid.
0: All right, one more question for both of you. Uh, do you think he will say anything when he's sentenced? you think he'll
1: speak? Uh, do I think? No. Do I want? Yes very much. I was one of those people who was not bothered at all by for example the Rolling Stone piece. I crave information about him for the reasons that we've talked about for the past hour. I just I want to feel like I understand a little bit more about him and about why and about how and then a little bit more about why again. So you know what? My fear is that well, he's going to get up and be we'll self. No, no, he's going to get up and be self-aggrandizing, and maybe even be argumentative, and maybe a hint of Masawi when he got up. Death to America or Bulger, This trial was a sham. Like these guys, when they get up, they they don't. You know, it's not a confessional. They don't. They don't tell you what what was going on. But no, you know what? I, maybe I, I don't. I'm conflicted because I, I don't want him to say things that are going to offend and hurt the people that yeah. he's already really hurt. So if he's not going to say something, I don't know what he could add that would be. Substantive enough to make up for the hurt That it would probably cause I guess
2: Yeah I mean look I think the worst Possible from a, from a reporter's perspective The worst possible thing that could happen Is he sort of gets up and is remorseful. Like I mean that's a very confusing You know I, I mean I don't I, I try as much As possible to, to always Whenever anyone asks me for predictions to say Like I have no idea About anything like almost Across the board and definitely With this trial like I have no idea um, do I want him to talk? Yeah, as a reporter, like, of course I want him to say as much as possible. But I think you know, to Jim's point, like, look, I think we've we've sort of we've, we've sort of gotten past the point where we know that this is going to go away. I mean, this is going to be what's the average is like 14 years or something for a death penalty. I mean, this is this is a story that's going to be around for a while. So I, you know, I'm pretty confident in the strength of the victims to figure out a way to 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 deal with it. I mean, they're going to have to. This is just, it's not going to go away. Um, you know, I think i think the, the, the trickier thing from, from here on out is to what extent do we continue to cover it, right? Like, to what extent do we continue to be, I mean, we've been on top of every single thing. And it's, like, even tomorrow I was sort of conflicted of, do I tweet this? Like, do I want to, do I need this to be, like, another Sernayev hashtag? But, you know, it's hard not to.
0: I have been wondering that same thing myself about the extent to which now that he's been sentenced, does it need to be above the fold? Every time there's a new development, does it need to be, again, like you said, you need to, to tweet it in real time. And I know that you know, there's this, this school of thought um, articulated among others by the family of Martin Richard, which says that this is gonna be with us continually and we're not really gonna be able to turn away. And I understand why for the Richard family, and for other families of victims and other people who you know were, were harmed physically in this they're not going to be able to look away but i do think that some of us in the media and outside the media have the ability maybe the luxury of looking away and i kind of wonder if it might be ethical for the media to
2: but unless but i think you know as well as i do that unless we all do like right. if if Fox 25 And I don't mean that They're just not here So I can say that If one station doesn't Then no one will And one station won't So no one will So You're let's right. just be honest about that Like there's no way But but I think it's also You know how How aggressive do we get In covering this I mean I think you know, do, are we trying to go interview Catherine Cernayev right now? I mean, so there's a, a a station that went down and found her at a mosque like a week and a half ago. I mean, or, you know, are we, we sort of like pursuing, are we pursuing the unknowns at this point? Or are we sort of trying, I mean, and that's the conflict, right? I mean, do we serve the victims or do we serve the public? I mean, I think that's the tricky thing too. I mean... You know. as, as, as
1: any appeal develops, I mean, we're, we're obligated to let people know that well, and it's the, happening. And, then and, and the appeal's
2: automatic, as far as I understand. I mean, like, there is there is no way there's not an appeal. like, there, And they will will have a whole new defense team appointed. So, yep, has to be a whole new defense team, because one of the appeals could be incompetent counsel. No, so he will have a whole new defense team appointed. Um, and there aren't that many people. Like, you know, I mean, this is the other thing, have you remember, It's like, it's a pretty limited pool of people. I mean, he'll get one, but... But it will be a it will be a whole new defense team, um, so that's sort of the next. I mean, beyond Catherine Sarnayev, to me is sort of the next like real news that could come out of this. But the appeal will happen. I mean, my guess is change of venue. Um, we'll see.
0: Well, when you mention Catherine Sarnayev maybe popping soon, I, I'm I will confess that I'm no no I know I know. But just that possibility it, it makes me ambivalent because. On the one hand, part of me thinks, oh, holy shit, I don't want to do that. But then there's this...
2: I I think it's a podcast.
1: No, I think it's it's, anything.
0: But then on the other hand...
2: Austin.com does not approve of swearing (laughs) on the air.
0: But I would
1: love to hear what she has to say. Right. Well, that's that's my same point. Like, do I want to hear him? No, because he's going to hurt victims to have him speak. But, right, that reporter part of me, like, I desperately want to gather as much information as I possibly can about this, but it's again it's balancing like to a, does that cause any harm in doing so and does that serve my needs more than it serves the needs of the public
0: all right jim armstrong hillary Sargent. thank you both for doing this again real pleasure talking with you I'll miss seeing you guys in the court we can sort of
2: we will, we will miss you too is that what i'm supposed to the say you, yes, yes. yes. you, too, you adam. too adam you too adam. <laughs> adam
0: yes yes well done um but guys thanks a lot thank you thank you And that's going to do it for the latest installment of The Scrum, which should actually be the last time that we tackle the Boston Marathon bombings. If you like what you heard today, then please subscribe to The Scrum in iTunes. While you're at it, if you're feeling generous, you could even leave us a review. You can find links to iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud on our website, wgbhnews.org. You can also email us feedback and ideas for future conversations you'd like to hear or topics you'd like us to delve into at scrum at wgbh.org. Our producer is Amanda McGowan. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.